0: Politicians are novices, and it's not that they're not smart, it's just that for many of them, their area is not education or education technology or, or um, culturally responsive pedagogy. And in those areas, they are novices. And so I believe our, where we can do well, and, and staying in our role as researchers, not necessarily getting political, but is to orient ourselves as to teaching what we know to those folks making decisions. Um, and I think that's our, our, our unique space.
1: You're listening, you're listening
0: to, you're listening to,
1: you're listening to the Learning Futures Podcast. The Learning Futures Podcast. The Learning Futures Podcast.
0: You're listening to the Learning Futures Podcast.
1: Welcome to the Learning Futures Podcast. I'm your host, Ron Begetto. On this show, we explore big ideas, key issues, and questions facing education now and into the future moving from what currently is to what could and should be, including considering serendipities and setbacks along the way. I am honored today to be joined by David Garcia. David, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and the work you do?
0: Sure, thanks, Ron. I appreciate the opportunity to be part of the podcast. Uh, I am an associate professor at uh, ASU in the Mary Lou Fulton Teachers College. Uh, My area is education policy. my background coming into this uh, to this position is: I spent some time at the state legislature. I was the uh, the associate superintendent for the state of Arizona in education for a while, uh, and then joined faculty uh, at the university. Uh, my academic work has largely been around school choice and accountability, but uh, since uh, for the last uh, few years, um, I think two things of note. Uh, number one decided that I wanted to influence policy from a different perspective, um, actually engaging in policy, and I think the road to do that is through politics. So I ran for state office twice here in Arizona, including uh, governor of Arizona, um, and have uh, most recently just finished a manuscript on a book tentatively titled Teach Truth to Power, which is a book on how to engage in education policy.
1: Yeah, what an interesting pathway and journey you've had. Um and I think it's really interesting and always important for our listeners to hear um a little bit more about that. I know this is learning futures, but I think describing your journey and, you know, those kind of decision points along the way. I think it's particularly important for young people to hear that, you know, oftentimes these pathways aren't planned out in advance. Um there are some kind of serendipities along the way. So it'd be really interesting to hear that. And I love the title of the book and we'll dig into that a bit more. But could you tell us a little bit more about the kind of unique pathway that you've taken into academia and now working in policy and and the writing you're doing?
0: Sure. Uh, I appreciate that because when I do work with students, in fact, just recently, I showed my CV when I applied to ASU. And it was a lot of fun to look back on uh, what my CV looked like. Uh, There were some things that they should emulate on that CV, things they shouldn't uh, as you look back on it. Um, but you know, for me, I'm from Arizona, born and raised. I went to undergrad at at, at, uh, at ASU, and uh, so this is home for me. And I'm a first generation college student, so it was it was important for me to get back and to be part of the community that has sort of helped me get to this point. Um, and so that being said, you know, my my job prospects were really around making a name for myself in Arizona. Um, and it's the reason why uh, the big plan was to get a job, work a nine to eight to five, work on my dissertation. Um, and that's not how it turned out. I did end up working at the state legislature um, in a policy position, in experiences, by the way, that continue to shape who I am as an academic. You know, I was, I was the analyst for the Senate Education Committee, for example, and I would go home and work on my dissertation. And I always found it of note that the, the theories and the people and the Articles that I was reading in the evening to finish my dissertation were nowhere in the conversation uh, at the legislature during the day. So it was almost two different lives I was leading, um, and that's always stuck with me. This idea of engaging um, in in policy and staying involved, uh, and you know, when I got the opportunity to join at ASU, I still kept a foot in that policy realm. And I mean engaging. This is, you know, I got to be really clear. What I mean is getting face to face with people. Um, and I understand there's a lot of different ways to engage. We're doing one right now with respect to a podcast or social media or posting on a uh, university site. But I don't think, and if you were to talk to people who sort of move policy, um, you, you can't replace the data, the, the face-to-face engagement. And I did was doing plenty of that. Uh, and it's just continued to sort of shape a lot of, of, um, of my own scholarship. One of the main reasons I ran for office was because I feel like, I've always felt like we as the research community had more to contribute. And, you know, folks weren't needed to listen to it more. Um, And one way to do that is to put yourself in a position to make those kinds of um, decisions yourself. So that's always been a central part of of kind of how I thought about this. And with respect to my latest work, um, there's a lot of research out there that explains what the problem is and talks about why you know, the, 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 the disjoint between research and uh, policy, um, but not a lot of how-to manuals. Not a lot of people have had, as you mentioned, this kind of uh, background um, to be able to not only do the academic side, but the engagement side. And the linchpin of this is being the candidate and getting into the pol- politics uh, side myself.
1: Yeah, again, it's such a fascinating path that you've taken, um, particularly as a first generation college student. I was a first generation college student myself and, you know, was kind of in a sea of possibilities, but also such a strange world going to university and there's no, there are no classes or there's no major in the path that you took. So I'd be curious just to hear a tad bit more, just what were some of the drivers? Were there folks that you ran into or how did... How did this all kind of come together for you and now doing this really important work, keeping that really kind of policy applied focus um, as an academic?
0: It's uh, funny. I appreciate you telling me you're a first generation college student. It's something that I I do mention uh, because we have a lot of students like that at the university. Um, And I appreciate the discussion around a journey because I think at times students sort of see the finished product. They see what you're writing now, they see you in the front of the classroom. um, And I think it's important for them to know that. I I was in the same seat they were in um, not that long ago, and I can understand it. You know, one of the the part of this for me was I, to be be perfectly honest with you, I've always had been fascinated with people who become things like poets, for example, because that to me has just got such an abstract, um, just such an abstract existence. My dad was a commercial painter, and he had his hands in things, and that's always been my sort of orientation is to—I still got to be able to see and touch it. And for me, getting in front of community audiences, getting in front of politicians, teaching, um, taking what we know and watching it, watching it play out in the school district or at the state level, or has always been my—I think—my way of having my, my hands in it. Uh, my the way of getting you know in, in involved in that way, and so it's always attracted uh, me. Um, with respect to getting involved in, 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 in the policy side. Uh, the politics side of it, um, you know, very, very different. I w- I'd like to say that more research was, was a lot of research is involved in, in creating a campaign, but unfortunately it's, it's not. Uh, a lot of it is public relations. A lot of it is public perception. Um, a lot of it is saying the same thing over and over again as you're out doing stump speeches. And, you know, it was an interesting experience for me, particularly when I ran for governor. To be in, to be involved in in policy, but in areas that I was not my primary area. For example, health, um, a lot of health policy, for example, and you know that continues to sort of sh- shape how I'm writing and thinking about this right now because uh, we have the same situation in, in education. We got folks who are not in education making education related decisions, and so. What's our role and how do we work as academics in that space?
1: Thank you. Yeah, thank you for um, unpacking that a a bit more. I think that's really interesting. And again, the worlds that you've been navigating and now with your latest book, which I just love the title, Teach Truth to Power. Could you unpack what that means a bit for our audience? What does that mean um, to you and the book and, and what might that mean to folks that are listening?
0: Well, I appreciate you like the the title. The editor at first uh, didn't like it, but I think it rings really true to to, to my goal for the book. So it's a play, obviously, on the idea of speak truth to power, which I uh, see as a kind of a rallying cry for academics and motivation for our work is to get out there and do good scholarship. And regardless of what it has to say, regardless if it sort of runs counter to the political winds to get out there and, and, and speak. Uh, speak our truth. But um, in a in a policy environment, there's a lot of people speaking truth to power. And um, they're their, their constituents and lobbyists and uh, organizations and political organizations and, commun- and, and non-profits. And I, I specifically chose the word teach because I believe that's a space we as academics, as researchers, that is a unique contribution we can bring to the policy space that is very different than somebody who was there just to speak their truth to power. And the orientation that I take to engaging in education policy is taking our strengths as academics, as, as educators, as researchers, and going forward and teaching in a policy space, not just standing up and, and, and speaking and, and um, you know, maybe maybe kind of pointing fingers and, and, and hollering. Um, again, a lot of folks doing that, but to teach. And I begin the book with this idea that first and foremost, you know, there is no such thing as a policymaker. Uh, We write about them, we put them at the end of our articles, but if you look at it and dissect that term really carefully, it's sort of everybody who's involved with policy, to include legislators, elected officials, and staff. Well, if you've worked in a policy environment, you know that there is a huge difference between the politicians who run for office uh, and, and set the policy agenda and the staff who carry it out. They're not the same people. Um, and that the politicians are novices. And it's not that they're not smart. It's just that for many of them, their area is not education or education technology or, or um, culturally responsive pedagogy. And in those areas, they are novices. And so I believe our, where we can do well and, and staying in our role as researchers, not necessarily getting political, but is to orient ourselves as to teaching what we know to those folks making decisions. Um, and I think that's our, our, our unique space.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really powerful invitation and call to folks that are doing research in education to think about that responsibility to educate others who are, are making decisions around education, but may not be aware of some of the issues or the complexities that are involved in that, and to kind of that end, what are some of the key pressing policy issues or even applied issues that are happening that you feel like really could benefit from folks um, helping to teach truth to power?
0: Well, let me kind of start off with the with the, the framework uh, for folks who are who are listening and and to to think about how they might go about this. Um, let me start off with this idea that politicians are novices, and I got to say that again. Ron, if you were to run for the legislature and uh, to win, um, you would likely be on the forestry committee um, or the health committee or the transportation committee. How much do you know about forestry health or transportation? Uh,
1: not enough to uh, be on a committee, probably. <laughs>
0: well, but 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 you're going to be on the committee, right? That's how it right. goes. let's <laughs> well, um, say it and... this way.
1: Not enough to be comfortable being on a committee about it.
0: Uh, at a transportation uh, conference somewhere, uh, the students would get together and say, "There's this guy, Ron. He doesn't. He's on the committee. He doesn't understand transportation." And, and they'd be right because in transportation, you're a novice. And I, I, I noticed that. I was a big part of, of what I came to understand uh, at the legislature, is that folks were in uh, you know, law, business, insurance, uh, uh, ranching, um, <laughs> and in there they were novices in education. Um, and so if, if we start with that as sort of a, a premise then, um, and you start looking at, and I, what I do is I bring in the nursing literature on how novices become experts and use that to help people understand, okay, um, what, how does the novice see things? And you know, One of the things is novices are, are, are don't have their own general rules. They do apply. They do look for external uh, validation and expertise, which I saw quite a bit. Um, and so, and they're looking for frameworks. They're looking for ways to understand and organize a lot of information coming at them. And it turns out that's what we do. It turns out we create frameworks. We create our theories are the basis of frameworks that we can help uh, novices better understand the experiences that they're uh, that they're about to the new experiences. Um, but we've got to also recognize, and this is an important one for academics is that politicians learn to, for the purposes of taking action, not for understanding. And uh, that's a big shift. Um, you know, a, a fundamentally, one of the main reasons, a, a sufficient reason to begin an academic inquiry, a research inquiry, is a lack of knowledge. But if that knowledge isn't turned into action, um, then from a, from a political standpoint, uh, I feel, what do you want me to do? And you know one of the things to keep in mind here is to turn what we're what we're doing into actionable um, requests, I call the, I call it the ask uh, to politicians so that they can specifically take action. Um, and some people may not be comfortable with an ask. Um, in fact, I teach a class at ASU and students get together with, folks out in the policy environment and at the end of their presentation their goal is to ask for something and a lot of my students are very um, hesitant to do that but in a political environment asks are part of the process and um, you know a good specific concrete ask is what we should be what we should be focused on Um, the other part of it is understanding the practical problem. Uh, that we are addressing. Politicians address problems and being very clear about what's getting better or what's getting worse in our research. So one really quick example on this is, I got this in the book, is I've run for statewide office twice. And uh, in, that, in that period of time, um, any guess how many times the idea of segregation came to, to me, Ron? Any guesses? How many times did people mention segregation?
1: i i I couldn't even hazard a guess
0: ten twenty thirty,
1: I would say, yeah, maybe ten ten to twenty times,
0: and if we were to Google segregation right now on Google Scholar, we'd get about two million hits, yeah, and the reality is it came up once mm. so how is it that i we can write about this routinely academically, and yet it come up only once in a in two statewide campaigns and What I learned was that people were not concerned about segregation, meaning the integration of black students and white students and Latino students and white students. That wasn't their practical problem. Their practical problem were the impacts or effects of segregation. People were very concerned with uh, language policies that they found to be restrictive, for example. They were concerned with uh, this inequitable educational opportunities and that could get tied back to segregation but not anybody at uh, the constituents I spoke to was that the underlying problem segregation the underlying problem was the effects of segregation um, And so you know and, and to talk about it from a segregation lens at least from their perspective would mean a two-step process desegregate schools and then influence language policies desegregate schools, and then create equitable conditions. And that step, at least as I saw it there in the public, was not something that they saw as necessary. They wanted to just change language policies and change, uh, you know, let's say, school finance policy specifically.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting. I think it's such an important observation that there are a lot of things being addressed Thoroughly in the literature, but there is that disconnect when it comes to policy and practice. And so, what I hear you saying is a lot of this work involves connecting those
0: dots. A a practical problem. So, one really concrete example I had this great student in my class, and he came in, and his policy problem was he wanted to save physics. And, you know, as a politician, that's not my practical problem. How do you convince me that my job is to save physics, and what do I need to do? And in working with him and his group, we created, uh, they've got the literature together about the importance of physics, et cetera. But the practical problem that they took to the legislature was they happened to have a census of physics teachers in the state. And there are not a lot of physics teachers in Arizona. I mean, people who are trained in physics and teaching physics. It was, uh, if I remember correctly, 36, 46 people, and that was it. And so they walked in to the legislator's office with concrete practical problems where they walked in and said hey legislator x um, do you know there's only one physics teacher in your entire legislative district and the response was no that's not possible And they said yeah here they are it's in you know it's this school and so now that became kind of a a practical actionable policy that uh, policy that the policymaker could do to ultimately save physics but more particularly to improve you know the lives and the conditions of the constituents in their, in their, in their school and it's you it change their orientation uh, pretty considerably.
1: And so doing that kind of work, anchoring it to the practical problem and being able to kind of render it into a practical problem that policymakers can understand and do something about is an area that I think a lot of scholars don't get training in. Even though we work, education's an applied field. And I always talk about, you know, the Monday morning problem that unless we can kind of translate what we're doing, that's going to actually help young people in classrooms or teachers teaching students or administrators, you know, leading schools on Monday morning. And I realize sometimes things take time. It often gets lost as well. And so I kind of hear you you talking in, in similar ways that there really is this consequential nature to a lot of the work we're doing. It's, it's an extra step that I think a lot of folks don't get prepared in their PhD programs or even their master's programs to think about that kind of practical, actionable, consequential nature of the research that they're doing and how can they make that teachable and understandable to folks that are actually taking action. Is that kind of... Um, in alignment with what you're talking about in your book,
0: that is, and you know, I think that the at least from a, I think I would add one wrinkle uh, to the Monday morning problem, and that is, you know, the Monday morning problem. You're communicating with people who are professionals. Uh, you assume that the teachers who are teaching and the administrators have some background in research or in pedagogy or in the area. We can't make that assumption with politicians. Remember, they're novices. Right. So you got to walk in the door, not only making it practical, but I think a a more of a a base level that we may be comfortable with, um, because it may not be an obvious problem to them. You know, one of the things to uh, keep in mind here, for example, is I I know that it's kind of easy to make fun of policymakers because the idea is that they make uh, politicians make decisions off of their own experiences but that may be their only experience with your content knowledge, right? Um, you know, if you study inner city uh, bilingual students and I'm a, I'm a politician from North, I don't, from, I don't know, Snowflake, Arizona or someplace like that, I may have never experienced uh, bilingualism or a bilingual classroom. And so now we've got to make that next step to translate this into something that I can uh, understand and experience on myself even if even as a uh, even as a novice. And, and there are ways to do this, you know, you 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 make the problem localized, you make it widely applicable, and you talk about the, the consequential part of it. Um, And I think that that's an important part of this framework.
1: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it's really about kind of describing the context, painting the picture, just, you know, or providing the narrative that really kind of brings that issue to life. Um, And so as we, this is the Learning Futures podcast, if we are kind of extending this conversation out now, David, to think about possible futures, what we'd like to invite our guests to do is to consider the good, the bad, and the beautiful with respect to this topic. So if you were to kind of map that out for us in your thinking, in this kind of, this framework that you've developed in teaching truth to power and ensuring that, you know, we recognize that folks that are making policy decisions that our politicians may not even have an awareness of the problem, let alone know how to kind of approach it. How do you imagine the different possible futures could play out in this work that you're doing?
0: That is a a wonderful uh, question and a a really wonderful framework for this, uh, for this, for this podcast. Um, If I were to think of the good and in my mind, the good is what can we, as academics and researchers meaningfully achieve now, kind of a low-hanging fruit maybe, I, I think that if we are clearer and stop using policymaker to mean everybody and begin to differentiate between politicians and professional staff, uh, I believe it would not only sort of clarify and crystallize the conversation about what how, how you go about having impact and what that looks like, um, but who we're writing to and how we're writing to them. Um, I think that would go a long long way. When I work with with folks on this and we and they write their work not as a not not from peer to peer, but from peer to novice, it, it changes how you frame it. it changes how you write about it, the words you use, the spacing of it even. Um, and I think that the, if we could do that, that would be wonderful right now. And I think that's something we can do, is get away from using the word policymaker and begin to be clear about whether we're dealing with politicians or professional staff. Now, the bad, if I, if I think about this, the bad, you know, and I'm not certain folks will see this as all bad, but we're never going to get away from the politics. I think there'll always be politics in in education, and there'll always be politics in education policy, and at times that may look irrational, and at times that may look self-serving, and certainly at many times it's going to look like things are moving too slow. But as I've come to to learn, you know, once folks run and win and they're politicians, they're going to make decisions in lots of areas, not just the one in which they are um, an expert in or have some content knowledge in. And, um, you know, those may be more political than we may, than we may like. And so maybe the bad is I'm not arguing, and I don't think it's even realistic for us to say that politics is going to be completely removed from, from education policy. And if I think of the beautiful, uh, the sort of, uh, wow, what would change this landscape fundamentally, I think it is including or incorporating the idea of engaging in education policy as a meaningful part of our tenure and promotion process at the university. Uh, Ron, we can talk about this, but not everybody is spending the time and energy like you are now uh, taking what we know and getting it out to a broader audience and as you and other ac- other academics know well, that's not always uh, rewarded as uh, as high as. Um, you know, scholarship that's generally intended for others and experts, uh, other experts in the field. So to me, if we're at a, at a university that's interested in, in impact, then having a professor of impact, somebody whose uh, tenure and promotion is is tied to engaging uh, in policy, I think could be, and not just here, but anywhere, you know, you think of a, we could think of a well-rounded, you we can think of a well-rounded sort of college of education faculty, one professor of impact who is out there engaging as part of their tenure and promotion process, uh, I think could be a really unbelievable uh, step forward.
1: Well, thank you so much, David. Uh, I, I think the idea of having professors of impact and and really thinking about this could be part and a necessary part of any institution's work. Um, and so there are, like you mentioned, some institutional barriers that may not recognize that, but the need of kind of changing those assumptions and perspectives about the nature of this kind of work um, is a really important conversation and action that I think many of us folks in academia can make. On the flip side of that, I'd be interested in hearing a little bit more about what about access to politicians themselves? How eager are they? Ah. So, where does somebody who wants to uh, maybe get more involved in working with all the various folks that are that are making? policy decisions of those entire teams, like you said, it's staffers, it's politicians themselves, but, but thinking kind of more broadly about how can they step into that space? What kinds of advice would you have to them?
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's a great question. And um, the book includes some very specific strategies. Let me give them to you. Number one, we need to get to politicians before they're politicians. And that is because once you start a campaign, once you create your agenda, it, it's it's a lot of work to to create meaningful change uh, in that. When there are places where politicians come from, um, and I list them in the book, specific places we can be engaging in with our scholarship. Um, when asked, for example, I'll give you one example, there are leadership um, there are leadership programs all across the valley. West Valley leadership, East Valley leadership, Valley leadership. Uh, there are ones through chambers of commerce. And Ron, every single time they ask me to present, I present. Why? Because a lot of the folks in there are thinking about running for office. And it is after I have that conversation with them, that their presentation, that they'll sit down and say, do you mind if I have, we have coffee? And sure. And now that's the opportunity to start to begin to shape somebody's thinking who is running for office. Once you run and win, you get a lot of new friends and a lot of folks come at you. Um, But there are some concrete ideas on how to get to politicians before the politicians, number one. Number two, we need to engage unlikely allies. Um, If you are a politician and you're hearing from the same usual suspects, then that begins to start to mute your, your, your impact. Um, let's get out to unlikely allies and have the unlikely allies take our research forward. So, for instance, when I want to get something in front of like uh, a, a newspaper, I'll get somebody in a field not related to education, uh, somebody in business or somebody in health, and I'll have them read my work, and then I'll say, here's my ask of you. Will you do me a favor? Will you take this to?" And I have a specific person at a publication, the, you know, the newspaper, et cetera, and let them know that you read it and you found it interesting and why. And Ron, when it comes from outside of us, when it comes from unlikely allies, uh, it resonates very, very differently because it throws off the rhythm of what politicians would expect. And so, engage in unlikely, unlikely allies is number two. And then number three, if you want to want to meet directly with politicians who are already elected, it's as easy as setting up a meeting. You know, um, one of the frameworks in the. In the um, book is uh, something I live by, and that is a little phrase that I call, it goes uh, to G-E-T, you have to A-S-K. And we've got to get in there and just simply set up a meeting and ask. But here's the key. Come prepared. Come prepared with documents that are fitting for a policy environment. And the book discusses what I call the research one pager. And in the end, have a concrete, specific ask. Um, Sometimes I've seen with academics, I've been on the staff side. I've seen academics come in, they talk to politicians. The The academic tells about the research for understanding and then walks away. And I say to myself, you're missing the opportunity here. Have a concrete ask. So... It is about getting to politicians before their politician, engaging with unlikely allies, and getting in front of politicians with an ask.
1: Well, thank you again, David, for sharing um, these very actionable and compelling insights and the framework that you've shared. Where can folks learn more about your work and where can they find your book?
0: Well, uh, the book is in copy editing right now. We are hopefully gonna get this thing ready for fall. Uh, it's gonna be released through MIT Press. Um, and so we're in that process right now and, uh, fingers crossed, I'll have a, a date, a link, uh, and, uh, there will be training opportunities associated with it as well. So that academics who do want to engage specifically come in with their work, with their ideas and work through how to create, how to take their work and turn it into an actionable policy, you know, engagement strategy, we're going to be doing, uh, that as well. So, Uh, Stay tuned, and as soon as I know these these specifics, we'll get it out there.
1: Excellent. And one final thing. Um, What ask would you have for our listeners, recognizing that we have a broad range of folks listening, some of which whom are academics, others who may be students or parents or community members? What ask would you have of them around this topic?
0: Wow, uh, another good question. Um, All right. If I were to think of an ask... For everyone, Lynn, understanding you have a broad uh, listenership here, here would be my ask. My ask would be take your research, take your knowledge, take the work that you do, and go present it to somebody completely outside your field. Completely outside your field. Um, Sit with them, explain what you do, why it's important. And I'm asking. I would ask the listeners to do that because it's going to help you give a framework of how you might think about reframing and thinking and discussing your work in a way that it can reach a broader audience. Uh, and, And if I were to push your ass, not somebody safe, not somebody you know well, you know, somebody who's more of a more distant acquaintance, nothing related to education get out there and engage with them, sit with them, explain what you do. I think that would be a fantastic learning experience for a lot of folks.
1: Thank you again. And that's a wrap. Thank you for listening to the Learning Futures Podcast. Be sure to check out the show notes for more information and see you next time.
0: The Learning Futures podcast is produced at Mary Lou Fulton Teachers College at Arizona State University. Executive producers are Dr. Sean Leahy and Claire Gilbert. The show is produced by Dr. Clarine Collins and Karina Munoz-Baltazar. Audio production provided by Claire Gilbert.